You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Well, amen. What a great time it has been uh, this morning so far at Bellevue. If you will, go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to John chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 21 today in a sermon on the Good Shepherd. Again, it is John chapter 10, verses 11 through 21. As you're turning, I'll share with you that my experience over the past week uh, has uh, been really interesting because we are now into November. And that means that all the Christmas musicians are thawing out and their music is appearing everywhere. Um, One of the ones that uh, seems to be one that is a classic favorite, uh, one that is played pretty frequently, is that old song that says, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why. And the answer is that Santa is coming to town, and he's making a list, he's checking it twice, he's going to find out who's naughty and nice. He sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good, so what? Be good. For goodness sake. The question that I have every time I listen to this song is, is probably more philosophical than uh, it should be. But the answer, the question I always think about is can you be good for goodness sake? The answer for us is obviously not. Jesus said that only God is good. True goodness is from God, who is, again, alone good. When we think of what is good and what is bad, a lot of us have different opinions on that kind of thing because, sadly, our definition of goodness is often subjective. For instance, uh, the one that I've heard a lot this morning is that is a good football coach. No, that is a bad football coach. At the meal this afternoon, some of you will say that is a good meal, and others will say that was bad. That was a bad way to handle that. No, you did good. There's all kinds of subjective views and definitions of goodness that we employ all the time. Um, I saw this subjective definition illustrated in the story of a preacher who said uh, to his congregation, you know, I'm paid to be good, but you folks are good for nothing. (laughs) But good in biblical terms, it's not subjective, right? It It doesn't depend. It's not relative. It's not based on on uh, the circumstances. Good is defined by Scripture, and it's defined by God, because again, He alone is good, and true goodness is seen in Him and not in us. And when we try to come to this biblical image of, of goodness, the best picture of objective goodness is Jesus Christ. And today, we will see that He is the Good Shepherd, and we'll see why He is called good. So let's look at John chapter 10, verses 11 through 21 together. I'm reading from the ESV, but you follow along in your translation. Verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. 
For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's have a word of prayer and we'll continue on in our sermon this morning. Father God, we come before you again this morning thanking you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we come uh, praising you, thanking you for this wonderful time of worship that we've had together today. Lord, a time we could celebrate a baptism Lord, now as we direct our attention to your word, Lord, as we look to what you have said, what you have definitively told us, Lord, we recognize that every part of your word is good. Lord, it has a purpose. And so, Lord, we pray that that purpose would be accomplished today in this place. That, Lord, you would lead us, you would guide us. Father, you would encourage and equip us, that you would convict us and challenge us. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts and minds to understand your will and your word. Father, we pray that today, having studied together, Lord, we would have heard your message rather than my own. Lord, these would be your words. You would speak to your people now. Father, like a shepherd, lead us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, in this passage, again, this is known as the Good Shepherd Discourse. Uh, If you're visiting with us today, we have been working through the Gospel of John verse by verse, and uh, we are today, again, in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 21. But in order to understand this, you really need to know much about what's going on in John chapter 9 and what we've seen in the preceding 10 verses of John chapter 10. Back in John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who was born blind from birth, and uh, we see that referenced in our text today. And what happened was as a result of the fallout of that situation, uh, there has been some kind of tension here between the Pharisees and Jesus. And Jesus has been rebuking these Pharisees and he's been correcting them uh, and, and teaching them. And so what we've seen here so far in John chapter 10, in the first part, we saw that uh, he has now compared the Pharisees and false teachers to thieves. We remember, if we enter by the door of Christ... We are saved, we are secure, and we are satisfied. Uh, The only way that we are able to come to the Father is through Christ. And if we do that, we are saved, we are secure, and we're satisfied. We know that our sins have been dealt with. We can be secure in knowing that uh, we won't lose our salvation or fall away. We can be satisfied through God's providence in meeting all of our needs. Last week, we simply looked at verse 10, and we saw that Jesus came to give us life. Life more abundant. Not the stuff of the world. Not a a magic ability to get whatever we want. But spiritual life and spiritual fruit so that we can glorify him, live the way he would have us to live, and fulfill his will for our life. Now today, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. Right? This is a very famous passage. Many of you are, are sure are familiar with this, maybe have even heard a sermon on this before. But the word used here for good in good shepherd, it's the Greek word kalos. Now this word means so much more than just good. You see, this Greek word has in it the meaning of beauty and excellence. 
So not only are, when we look to Christ are we seeing one who is our good shepherd, what we're seeing is a beautiful and excellent shepherd beyond just that common word of good. When we look to Christ, we see the most beautiful and excellent shepherd, the only savior of mankind. Most of us, again, acknowledge that Jesus was a good guy. We acknowledge he lived a good life. Even the pagans admit that. But we know as believers that he is so much more than that, that he is the eternal son of God who was sent to save us. And so today what I want to do is just take a few moments to examine what makes the good shepherd so good. We know that Jesus is a good savior. We know that he is a good shepherd. But it will do us well both in our daily life and our actions and also in our worship to dwell on just how good he is. Because the more we know of how good our Savior is, the better we will worship him. And so let's look at some of the reasons that this passage gives us that he is a good shepherd. The first one is one that is very clear from the reading of this text, and that is that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And we see this here in verses 11 through 13. To share with you a few moments ago, last week we saw Christ came to give us abundant life. This week we, say that we see that he came to give his life. Christ is good and beautiful because he came to give his life a ransom for many, the Bible says. Our passage today tells us at four separate points that Jesus lays down his life. Jesus' death on the cross is the demonstration of God's love for his people. We uh, should understand that and know it pretty well. But John 15, 13, uh, a famous verse tells us, The greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Immediately, we see that Jesus' death is just one reason that he's the good shepherd. Now, we know that this is an analogy I shared with you again over the past few weeks from Ezekiel 34 and other places, how Jesus here is referring back to uh, a parable or an analogy that he's used in the past between uh, himself and spiritual shepherdhood and then also that with physical shepherds who actually existed during that day. The idea of laying down your life for the sheep was something that practical physical shepherds dealt with every single day. It was a natural part of it. Because if you were to be a shepherd in those days, it meant physically protecting the sheep. Because as we've seen, the sheep are constantly threatened with death and with attack. They're threatened by wild animals, like the lions and bears that we saw in the life of David. Remember, he, he dealt with lions and bears attacking a sheep. But they're also threatened by thieves and robbers. We saw that in uh, Jesus' teaching so far in this passage where he talks about people who uh, try to enter the sheepfold from behind. They want the wool or they want the meat. And so what we see is the sheep are, are constantly threatened. And part of the reason for this uh, physically was that in those days the word for sheep and the word for wealth was actually interchangeable because that's how valuable sheep were seen to be. And so the shepherd had to constantly be ready to defend his sheep. Now, if I am going to defend my sheep from lions and bears and robbers, then I know that naturally there is a chance that I will risk my life. Uh, personally, I don't want to be in the ring with a lion or a bear, or really even a robber. Because if I do, I know that there's a chance. The lion, always, the lion bear always has an option to turn around and eat you. And so for the shepherd in that moment, 
If their sheep were under attack, they naturally were going to be putting their life on the line to deliver their sheep. That's exactly what Christ did. He gave his life to deliver us from sin. He didn't die fighting an animal, or or even if we want to kind of spiritualize that, he didn't die fighting the devil. He died to appease God's wrath for sin. He he took the punishment that we deserved, and we'll, we'll talk more about this here in just a moment, but we see that he lays down his life to save us. And this is in contrast to the hired hand who runs away. Jesus here is telling the people, follow me. I'm the good shepherd. And then he tells them of these, uh, these hired hands who is uh, directly related to the false teachers and the thieves who we've seen in the past. They don't own the sheep or care for the sheep. And at the first sight of any danger, what happens? They're gone. They flee. They run away. And this is because they do not care for the sheep. Jesus did not. He bore our punishment on Calvary. We think of the agony that he suffered in the garden as he uh, prepared for this, and he said, not my will, but yours, Lord. And in Christ laying down his life, we see God's love and grace on display to the praise of his glorious grace. So Jesus is good and beautiful for laying down his life, but I want to take just another moment here in this point to talk about Jesus' death because there's a few things we need to know about it in order to appreciate it. The first is that Jesus' death was selfless. Romans 5, verses 7 and 8 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. When we think about the selflessness of Christ's death, again, the the hired hands, they're concerned about their life, and they're concerned about what they're going to get out of it. Christ is concerned with the sheep, and most importantly, the will of the Father, as we'll see. It's all because of the will of the Father. When we analyze verse 18, we'll see that no one took Christ's life Rather, he gave it in accordance with the will of the Father. He laid it down selflessly. When he had all of the authority over life and death, he chose to lay down his life for the sheep. Not only was his death selfless, but his death was also sacrificial. We need to be very careful when we think about this because over the years there have been many theologians and there have been many people who have tried to distort the atonement and the work of Christ on the cross and we cannot allow it. Jesus did not die to set a good example of love. We know that in that he shows God's love, but that wasn't, that's not why he died. Christ did not, uh, he did not die to appease the devil. He died to satisfy the wrath of God towards sin. It was a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice, just in, the, in, in a similar manner of those in the Old Testament. Uh, in those days, they would place their hands on the goat, and they would, by that, place their sins on the goat. They would offer up these scapegoats, these sacrificial animals, who would cover Sin for a moment, but not truly and not fully. 
But our sins were placed on Christ and he laid down his life for the sheep. He died in our place. We should have faced God's righteous eternal judgment because of all our sins, but by his grace, Jesus paid the full price. As the hymn says, by interposing his precious blood. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we see it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was not dying on the cross for his own sins. He didn't have any. He was perfect. He lived a sinless life. But rather what we see is that Christ died for our sins. He died for the sheep. Which leads us to our final thought on Christ laying down his life for us, and that is that his death was not only selfless and sacrificial, it was specific. The Bible tells us here, he laid his life down for who? For the sheep. The sheep are those given to him by God. Paul explains it this way in Ephesians 5.25, in this one we always love about marriage. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. See, Christ loves his people and he gave himself up for them. Jesus died to pay for all the sins of his sheep. And he promises that he will not lose even one of the sheep that the Father gives him. So this truth should assure us. If we believe in Christ, we are one of his sheep for whom he died. And he will by no means cast us out. We can be secure. And we saw this back in John 6, 39. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. As that empowers us to live lives knowing that we are secure in his grace. It empowers us to know that our sins have been dealt with. This is why uh, Martin Luther said uh, famously when he felt like the devil was trying to remind him of his sins, he said, what of it? It is this truth that helps us to have that same resolve knowing that Christ has paid for our sins. He has borne every last drop of God's wrath. The good shepherd is good because he lays down his life for the sheep. On the cross, he experienced the weight of every sin that we ever committed or will commit. He experienced the full measure of God's wrath. He took it all for us. He is good. And, and we see his goodness in the way that he laid down his life for the sheep. Secondly, this morning, I, I want you to see another reason that the good shepherd is so good is because he knows his sheep. This is in verses 14 and 15. Uh, we saw it a few weeks ago in the beginning of, chapter, uh, beginning of this chapter in verses 3 and 4. And we remember from that passage that the shepherds inspected the sheep as they entered or exited the fold. And the shepherd knew the sheep and they know him so they follow his voice rather than the voice of strangers. The idea is echoed here in that the sheep are known. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. The parallel of this knowledge is with the knowledge of the Father and the Son. Now, we know that the Father and the Son, as 
persons of the Trinity. They know each other perfectly. Jesus is not saying that we're going to know him in the exact same way that the Father does. But rather what he is saying is that there will be close, intimate knowledge. The idea of the word know, biblically, is not just mentally getting a hold of something. It goes far deeper. It's not just knowing, for instance, uh, the basic like traits. Right? Like I can go on the internet today with the beauty of, of Wikipedia. And for instance, I'll just use this as an example. I could type in an athlete, and I can tell you their height, their weight. I can tell you all the things that you want to know about them. Right? And, and we talk about that as knowing things about them. When we're talking about the biblical idea of, of know here, it goes so much deeper than that. In the Old and even in the New Testament, the concept of knowing was used to describe the intimate marital knowledge of a husband and a wife. Frequently in the uh, Old and New Testament, again, the consummation of marital relationship is described as he went in and knew his wife. The idea here is that there is a deep biblical connection between knowing and loving. We are known by God, not just because he is omniscient and knows everything. I mean, if God didn't know everything, he wouldn't be God. So, of course, he knows about us, right? Of course, he, he knows the traits of us. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows every aspect of who we are. But we are known by God because by his grace and his great love, he knows us. Again, not just who we are and what we are about, but truly knowing us in love as his people, as his friends, as his children. Psalm 8 praises the Lord for his majesty. It's a, it's a beautiful psalm, uh, one that I love to read as a call to worship because it's talking about the majestic nature of who God is, his glory and his goodness. And one of the things that makes God so majestic is the question that's asked in Psalm 8, verse 4. Which says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The idea, again, being the almighty God of the universe, again, knows us and cares for us. It's a big deal. And, and we think about it, again, compared to God, we are so infinitely small. How often do, do we regard a bug that we step on. We don't think about it, do we? Because they're small, they're insignificant compared to us. And yet, so much less than that are we to God in terms of our size. But yet he knows us and he loves us. He knows fallen, frail human beings, not just small but who have constantly and continuously rebelled against him and his law. What a good God and a good shepherd we have. Because we recognize he does not need us for anything. He doesn't require us. But he chooses by his great grace and great love to know us and have relationship with us. And that is beautiful. Thirdly, we, you see the good shepherd is good because he'll gather all of his sheep. We see this in verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Again, Jesus has made this point. In, at the end of verse 15, again, we see, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
In verse 16 now, Jesus is saying, I have, but I have other sheep that are not in this fold. Now, when we think of that, we might be tempted to confuse, get confused because there's, a, a, again, this analogy of sheepfolds that we may not be familiar with. Uh, but the point that Jesus is making is ultimately about uh, the Jews. He was saying, there are other sheep beyond just you Jews who I'm speaking to, and I must gather them as well. But the idea is, Jesus is saying, I'm a shepherd, and I have multiple folds. In those days, I mean, if you have ever uh, farmed animals of any kind of uh, herd variety, what you know is you might have separate groups. For instance, shepherds might have separate folds of sheep. For instance, I might have a sheepfold down the mountain, I might have a sheepfold up here on the mountain, but there's still one flock, and I'm still the shepherd. Think about this in my family with their cows. They might have cows over here and over there, but they have one herd. So when I ask, how's the herd doing? I'm not talking about one group here or one group there. I'm talking about the collective whole group. Jesus is saying, I'm a shepherd, I have multiple folds, but I have one flock, and that one flock will be together under one shepherd. Christ tells us he must bring them as well, and that they will listen to his voice. These are the elect from every nation, all who will believe in the Lord. And Jesus says, I must bring them, and they will listen to my voice. The good shepherd is telling Israel here, it's not only for you and Israel that I have died, but for sheep all over the world, and I will have them. The Bible tells us that the way that these sheep are gathered in is through the preaching of the word. These sheep are gathered through the preaching of the word. Romans 10, 12 through 15 famously tells us that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Therefore, we are to go and preach the glorious good news of our good shepherd to all people that the sheep may be gathered in. So the scripture of Revelation will be fulfilled that tells us of the great multitude of sheep from every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus was telling us here that there is really only one church. Now we recognize today there are several local churches. We are uh, actually, it's interesting that Etowah County is um, the geographically smallest county in the state of Alabama. And yet uh, we have 82 Southern Baptist churches in our association. Now that's not counting all of the other churches and everything else that's going on as well. Now we recognize that not every church is a faithful and Bible-believing church. And so what I want to make clear to you is that when we're talking about this here, we're talking about people who legitimately preach the gospel and believe the gospel as salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Jesus was telling us, though, that there's really one church. There are several local churches. There are many folds that are faithful. But there is one flock. There's one universal church, and this simply means that there is one church that's made up of all the people who truly and legitimately believe in Christ. And Christ is the head of that church. Now over the years, this scripture has been twisted. For instance, uh, uh, the Catholic Church has tried to twist this to say that this means that they are the head and that the Pope is the one shepherd. And I would argue that that is incredibly dangerous 
and, uh, and blasphemous. There is one church, one flock made up of all of Christ's sheep, and there is one shepherd. And it is not a fallen man, but it is Christ himself. He is the head of our church. He is the shepherd of our flock. As Colossians says that he might have preeminence in all things. And so what this does is this reminds us to preach the gospel. We are to go and and faithfully preach the gospel so that the sheep of other folds may be gathered in. But it also reminds us that all true believers are united as one flock under one shepherd. All that are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone are under him. And the application of that is very simple again as well. We work together with other legitimate churches for the purpose of furthering the gospel. We join with them in friendship and brotherhood and and co-laboring and fighting alongside one another against the ways of the world and the devil and the flesh. Over the years... uh, a hymn has become one of my favorites that was written and it's been adapted and we sing it frequently here, uh, or at least we have. Um, I know we've sang it multiple times here. And that is the church's one foundation. And it expresses this truth very well because it tells us the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. We recognize that, again, we were purchased by Christ. He laid down his life for us and make us a new creation, and now we are a group We are one over all the earth, even though we are from various different backgrounds and places. We have one Lord, one faith, one birth. And the one holy name that we bless is the name of Christ because he is good. Fourthly and lastly, we see that the good shepherd is good because he fulfills the Father's plan and he defeats death. See this in verses 17 and 18. It says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. We see that the good shepherd fulfills the plan of the Father. The Bible tells us the Father loved us before the foundation of the world. He loves the Son The Son perfectly fulfills the the will of the Father. And we see this truth expressed that no one took Christ's life, but again, he laid it down of his own will. The Bible says he alone had authority to lay it down, and he alone had authority to take it back up because he's God. When he died, the text tells us, if you go back and read your uh, Easter accounts, the accounts of the crucifixion, the Bible tells us that he gave up his spirit. He gave up the ghost. I've shared with you before that what this means is that he allowed himself to die. He gave up his spirit. It was not taken from him. It was not ripped from him. No one killed him, but he allowed death to take him so that he could take up life again and rise from the grave victorious so that we can be made righteous 
by his grace, and we too will rise from the grave in eternity with him. As people claim to live good lives all the time. In fact, in, in evangelism, this is one of the things that constantly uh, faces. People say, well, you know what, I'm, I think I'm doing pretty good. I live a good life. But when we really begin to look at what the Bible tells us as far as the standard that is required of us, we fall woefully short. We've lied, we've lusted in our hearts, we've hated in our hearts, which is tantamount to adultery and murder. We have coveted. And we've certainly put other things before God. We cannot fulfill that law. He alone perfectly fulfilled the law and the will of the Father in a way that we never could have. And he took our punishment and he rose again. As the beauty of the Good Shepherd is, is, again, yes, he laid down his life for us, but dying is not unique. In fact, it's one of the only things that's certain. But rising again is. The fact that Christ defeated death and that this is attested by Scripture, by the sources of the world, it is a known fact. Christ rose. And what this means for us is incomparable. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57 says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does all of this mean? Well, it means he is good. And he is worthy to be praised. We have a good shepherd who has defeated death. So may we live in the knowledge that as believers he died for us, took all of our sins, gave us his righteousness and made us right with God. May we recognize that our mission is to go and be used to gather the sheep by preaching the gospel. As we conclude, we see here in verses 19 through 21 that there is division, right? Verse 19 says again, Constantly throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen there's been division over who Jesus is. But here in verse 19, another instance, there's again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. So he's crazy. Others said these are not the words of one who's oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You see, these Jews in that moment had been confronted by something that was so good that they had no place to put it. Again, nowhere in any of their history, nowhere in any history had there been seen one person who had been healed of blindness from birth. It had never happened. And so when these Jews are now confronted with something so amazing, they say, how in the world could you say that these are the words of one who's oppressed by a demon? Could a demon do this? If you're here and you're a sheep, you know him, he knows you, and you follow his voice, amen. 
live like it. Preach the gospel, worship him, glorify him as he should be glorified. And and we say, how can there be division over a shepherd that is good? But if you're here today and, and you don't follow him, I implore you to turn from your sins and trust in him today by his grace. Throw yourself on his mercy. For he is a good shepherd who loves the sheep. The question that we must ponder today is where is that shepherd leading us today? What is he leading us to do? As we ponder his will, as we reflect on his word, let's go to him in a word of prayer. Father, we once more come before you today, and Lord, we thank you for sending your Son. Lord, we know that there is no hope for us apart from him. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us, and Lord, we pray that you would guide us in your will, you would help us to fulfill it, Lord, to be faithful to what you've called us to. Lord, we pray now that your will would be done in this place, that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.